welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Well, welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Houston Cannon with Charlie Simmer, former NHL All-Star and current business development representative at Total Oilfield Rentals. Charlie, you said you drove in from Austin this morning. How was that drive? It's part of the business in Texas, right? Yeah. We got the corporate jet, so it was easy. The yeah, Ford right. 150 and yeah, a, yeah. a coffee and <laughs> yeah. a bagel and away you go. But that seems to be the choice of business when you're in Texas is, is driving. So yeah. it's really been a, not a big issue. And I, I usually get up early because... All the guys that I deal with in the oil field always get up early. So yeah. it's it's amazing how many phone calls you, you get at four or five in the morning. So you just, yeah. you, you kind of, well, I'm an old guy now and I get up at four or five. So that's the way it goes. Take my nap in the afternoon and I'm good. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you can't be that guy who gets a call at five in the morning and sounds like you're half asleep because by that time, most people would say they've already put in a full day's work. What are you doing sleeping? So I get it. How far is Austin from here? It's about almost three hours, so almost it's not too hours. bad. I mean, just getting to this side of Houston is pretty easy. And, and the last last bit is just the last 15 miles coming in from Katy and, of course, with a morning rush. <laughs> yeah. but, but the rest of the drive from Austin, I get up early enough to get through the city. And basically, it's a beautiful drive coming across 71 to the 10. So it's lots yeah. of wildlife and lots of fast drivers. Yeah, right? Are you one of them? Pedal to the metal. No, I know not, you. not quite. Just, you know, put it on the cruise control just a few <laughs> miles over the speed limit. And, yeah. you know, after many, many times of getting pulled over and fortunately getting only warnings, I, yeah. I kind of just take it easy. And anytime you go through a really small town, you've got to slow down oh, because yeah. someone's waiting for you. <laughs> uh, they've got, they've <laughs> yeah. got to get that revenue up for that small town. So I get it, man. So that's interesting. You've said, you know, been pulled over many times, typically get warnings. Do you have a special trick or like, is there, because I know some people have, a silver tongue when they're talking to law enforcement and a lot of folks especially my wife now hers involves a lot of tears and a lot of times that helps but like how do you do that if you get pulled over do you have a special yeah tears don't work well for a guy okay. that's six three and right barely fits inside of a truck and you start crying in front of a police officer <laughs> he's probably going to double your fine but no I, I don't know i just i think a lot of it is just being cooperative and yeah you know lots of compliments and right yeah but and and i normally don't go that far over so it's, yeah. it, it's kind of a marginal thing anyways it's all depends on how the officer's feeling and and, and they're there for a job. And I understand that. Yeah. And, you know, they do a great job and I have nothing but the respect for what they have to do. So I, I kind of be as most respectful as I can. And yeah. it's like, I guess I was speeding. I, you know, that last one I said, well, uh, no, the sign said 65. No, I said, and the guy said, well, no, it dropped the 55 right there. I says, well, I didn't see that. So I guess I'm, I'm guilty. Yeah. And, you know, and next thing, you know, he gave me a warning and nice, you know, which was good. And then of course, then you have to throw the compliment at him and, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. really, you know, just in case down the road, they pull you over again. So hey, you got to boost happen. their ego a little yeah. bit, right? Because, you know, going through Texas for the oil and gas industry, you do go through a lot of little towns, really oh. neat little towns. Yeah. But, you know, you just want to show a little bit of respect for them. No, 100%. And it's it's funny, actually. So when I, growing up in Canada and BC there, I felt like I could get myself out of a lot of trouble just by sweet talking police officers or RCMP, as we call them. And there were a lot of female RCMP officers back then too. Yeah. So I could see how you would get away with that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I was good with words and I like to think that I still am. But with that said, I can't tell you how many times I got out of a, whether it was a speeding ticket or, you know, just small little things here and there. But down here, I don't know. They're pretty strict. I feel like the law enforcement down here, they don't play games. I remember when I was in Colorado, I was looking over some stuff in the DJ Basin. So I'd drive from Denver to the DJ Basin, shoot probably once a week at least. I was going through, I think it was Brighton, Colorado, or one of those little towns just, you know, close to the DJ. 
yeah, I got pulled over and I still had my Alberta driver's license. And then a female police officer pulled me over and so I'm thinking, okay, this will be, you know, I'll be able to manage this. Like, Here come the lines now. Yeah, it's yeah. going to work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm from Alberta, you know, still used to the conversion, you know, metric, you know, kilometers per hour, miles per hour, just kind of, you know, and so I, you know, hey, how you doing, officer? Yeah, sorry, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, you know, here's my driver's license. I'm from Alberta. You know, I'm still getting used to everything and just kind of striking up a conversation. And she was not having it. She was just <laughs> like all business, you know, no fluff, just get down to business and before I could finish my, you know, my pitch, she was already writing me up a ticket. Didn't she didn't want to hear anything. I'm like, holy cow, she's, this is different. <laughs> like normally back home, you could kind of sweet talk your way out of stuff, but down here, no go. Well, it's I guess it's just how they're having a day too. If they're having a good day or a bad day, and if they <laughs> yeah. got a quota to mix or, or to get, or I don't know. But uh, yeah. you probably looked very guilty that morning. I probably did. Probably late night, and I wasn't looking too good. But anyway, I digress. So with that said, you know, I always like to ask a question. So it's Thursday today when this gets released. I don't know what day of the week it'll be, but tomorrow's Friday, obviously. What does a perfect Friday night look like to you? Like if you could do anything in the world, what would the ideal Friday night be? Well, I mean, I, that, that, I would try to stay up past nine o'clock for sure. Oh, but, I, uh, I know. Yeah. In our industry, you know, we try to get out, maybe play a little 18 holes of golf in the afternoon because okay. most people are out of the office already and gone. And, yeah, you yeah. know, I've been usually traveling all week. So if I scrambled in the morning and get that going. And then after that, I really enjoy, well, of course, the last year has been a little bit difficult, but, you know, we, we have a lot of good group of friends. We're in Lakeway, just west of Austin. So yeah. by Lake Travis. So there's lots of little tiny restaurants to go to so a lot of times we instead of going into Austin we had you know head south into the hill country towards Dripping Springs or Wimberley really small towns and try to find a unique little restaurant to get out with some friends and wineries of course yeah try to tip up a couple and of course bring our designated driver so that's very important because those dark country roads are very mysterious at night but oh yeah pretty casual we we stay close to home quite a bit after we're kind of fortunate where we live everything is we call it the bubble, but everything in this small community, suburb of, uh, of Austin, is it's all there between, you know, workout, the lake, trap, you know, walking trails, bike trails, tennis, golf. So yeah. it's, we're pretty fortunate that way. Wow. So but pretty, sounds- pretty quiet, stay at home type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're living your best life then. Because I said, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And you basically described every Friday night. So you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. Yeah, I, I, we really do. I mean, through my life, I've been very fortunate to, I mean, have a career or have a passion that I was able to achieve yeah. in, in playing hockey. And I was able to travel all around the world. And of course, maybe more travel in North America than I wanted to sometimes, <laughs> but, you know, some international hockey, things like that. And I think as I get on, you know, there's a lot of things I still want to do. I don't want to stay home all the time, but yeah. I think I'm more selective now What I when I want to travel now. Yeah, I mean, there's that's a lot of years between junior hockey and leaving home at 16, turning pro at 20, and then getting good 18 years in there, and then another 20 years of broadcasting for hockey. Yeah, that's a lot of airplanes, a lot of hotels, a lot of restaurants, a lot of good food, a lot of bad food. Um, <laughs> but I find now that I'm running out of patience. You know, if I want to go someplace for travel, that just got to be a mission. Yeah, you know, I just don't want to do. Hey, do you want to go here for the weekend? It's like, no, not really. I mean, if you want to go to Hawaii for 10 days? Yeah, I'm in. You know? Right, yeah. I'm a little bit more selective, I think, now than when I want to do things. Hey, good for you. And I think you get to a point, if you know more of what you want, there's not so much guesswork. It's like, I know what I want. Here's where I want to be. Here's what I want to do. That's it. The wine has gotten more expensive and finer. The rum is better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it, it's more or less, yeah, I'm choosing to do the things I want to do. And it's been really enjoyable. And of course, family is very important to me. So, yeah. I mean, do you want to go away for a weekend or do you want to go visit your granddaughter? Like, there's no comparison. That's, yeah. So it, it's, well, you can go here and play golf. Well, I can play golf anytime. You know, if, you yeah. know see your granddaughter, your kids or friends that you've had for 20, 30 years. It's definitely more important. Yeah, no, I can identify with you there. It's especially since having kids now, a lot of my free time, if it's not tied up with work or other, you know, priorities, it's it's the kids. And so, yeah, because you can't replace that time and you certainly can't replace time with money or, you know, it's great to have those experiences with family, I think is the best mix. But I understand what you're saying there. And, and that's you, that's, you know, so for the folks out there listening, you're probably heard a little bit of the Canadian accent from both of us. And then Charlie here mentioning hockey. 
Charlie, I'm curious. So where did you grow up? Because I do want to get into the journey of the hockey and then the transition into oil and gas. But I think it's important to kind of get an understanding of where it all began. So you're from Canada. Whereabouts originally? I grew up in Terrace Bay, Ontario, and most people won't know where that is, but it's eight Uh miles east of Scriber. Okay, and 30 miles west of Marathon. So, I mean, everybody knows those two hot spots. But no, it's a tiny, tiny town. It's about It was about 1,400, 1,600 people. And it's still still going strong now. It was right on the North Shore of Lake Superior. So ah. the Great Lakes, the most westerly Great Lake, Lake Superior. And it's 120 miles from the big city of Thunder Bay, mm, which yeah. is the closest McDonald's, the closest theater, the closest. So we were in the wilderness. And uh, the town was developed in 19, like 48, 50. So it was, it was just a siding on the railway. And Kimberly Clark Pulp and Paper came in and said, we're going to build a mill here. So huh. if you think of Andy and Mayberry, if for all the older people that are listening, it was a model town. They, this company came in, built every house, you know, three model versions of, of every house, driveway, garage. They built a rec center with an ice rink, curling rink, rec center, golf yeah. course, swimming pool, the schools and everything. They even plowed your driveways in the wintertime. That's how good this company was. No doubt. So my dad went over there and started in the mill in the 50s, in 1950. Uh, okay. And as part of the program, they built an ice rink, indoor ice rink. Everybody says, well, you lived in Canada, you skated outdoors on the pond. I said, I never skated outdoors in my life, <laughs> unless I wanted to, right? Yeah, yeah. They had built this perfect arena. And then they hired all these uh, minor league hockey players. I mean, back then, there were only six teams in the NHL. So if you were in the minor leagues, you probably would be an elite player in today's game. No I mean, doubt. Because the supply and demand was, was so little there because of only six teams. Yeah. So they hired all these minor pros to come in as mill rights electricians. They trained them. They put together a very serious senior hockey league in Canada. It's actually another division of junior hockey league, but okay. it's, it's all the seniors. And it's a huge, it's for the Allen Cup and it's a big, big thing. So they brought all these people in. Of course, they started coaching and helping kids. And that's what I just grew up playing on the rink and then watching the seniors play. And it was like, well, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And back then there was, you only got to see two hockey teams, either Montreal Canadiens or the Toronto Maple Leafs on hockey night in Canada. Yeah. So I mean, one game a week during the season and it alternated between the Canadians and Toronto. So each week there was a different team. Right. And you so either, you like, to- either like one or the other in Canada. So of course the question is, which one were you? Well, I was more a Toronto fan, but in reality, I was a, a big Chicago Blackhawk fan. Oh, okay. I just, How's that? I just loved their jerseys. And of course, Bobby Hull was, yeah. was the star back then. And that was just the team that was my favorite team. But between the two, I cheered for Toronto. Okay. And just grew up. We played street hockey. We played road hockey until you know, the same story. It was like until mom called you in for bedtime or the lights went out, you were, yeah, yeah, you no were out or else you're on the ice whenever you did. And that was my passion. I, I mean, I always, you know, looked at the guys that were ahead of me, you know, Bobby Hull, Gordy Hull, and you'd always be mimicking down the street, you know, yeah. past to here, big save, you know, every once in a while you had to go play goal and, and we used tennis balls, yeah. which, okay, that's not too bad. But when you freeze, I mean, it's minus 20 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. That tennis ball gets frozen pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is like getting hit with a hockey puck. And of course, you always wanted to protect certain parts of the body that yeah, it, yeah. It seemed to hurt a little bit more than others. But that's just what I just dreamed about. You know, I wanted to play in the NHL. And, wow. and I, it was a dream. It was a passion, especially when you're way in the middle of nowhere and no one had ever done it from my area. No kidding. So, I mean, but that's how I kind of got into it and just progressed. And wow. that seemed to be my passion, for at least for the winter months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, and I'm excited to keep going down the path here. But before we keep going, I do have to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC continues to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. Also, we're currently, actually, we've been doing our monthly happy hours here in Houston now for the last few months. Check out OGGN.com or follow us on LinkedIn for details on all our events. And please make sure to look at all the other OGGN podcasts. We have a ton of new podcasts coming. I think we're up to 12 different podcasts. So any topics... 
within energy that you can think of, we've got a podcast for it. So again, check out OGGN.com and yeah, click around and see if there's one that interests you and, you know, continue to support oil and gas onshore and the rest of the OGGN crew. So Charlie, so, you, you know, growing up in a small town, playing hockey, I mean, at what point did you, or maybe your coaches or your parents recognize that you had something special? Cause you know, obviously for someone to play at your level, you know, in the NHL for various teams in a very successful career, it doesn't just happen by chance. It may have been, you know, a little bit of genetics, a little bit of hard work, combination of the two. But at what point did you say, holy cow, like, I think my dream may actually come to fruition if I if I put in the work. Was there a sort of a pivotal moment that made you realize that? No, I, I don't think, not early on. I mean, it was still always a dream and you were so remote. I mean, we had little towns every 50 miles and used to play hockey, you know, tournaments every weekend and, you know, with these certain age groups. And I always seemed to be playing above my age group just because there weren't a lot of kids and, and I enjoyed playing it. And I think back then you didn't realize that you were good, but you were just able to, to play with older kids. I mean, I always played in, in one or two groups ahead of us and then, it came to a point when I was 14 or 15, I was playing senior hockey with grown men. Oh, yeah. So, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like you get in the locker room and you're, you're 14 or 15. And back then, a lot of these guys are all old woodcutters or, I mean, in typical oil and gas guys, you know, big, strong guys. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're there to have fun, drinks, and, and have a good time. But, I mean, it was very serious. I mean, it was very physical, very demanding, and there were a lot of fights and there were a lot of and I can remember getting out in the ice the first time we're playing with the seniors and like growing men and you know skinny. I was I was tall but I was skinny. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is not going to turn out well. And you could see everybody just the other team looking up and down. You know, who's this skinny kid? You know, he shouldn't be out here. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was like a couple of the guys, big guys in our team, just walked up to their team. No one touches the kid. Yeah. I'm telling you right now. I mean, it's a Donnie Brooks. It would open, you know, the whole everybody fighting on the ice if it had to be. So it was like, <laughs> okay, there's a lesson learned right now that, you know, sooner or later you got to take care of yourself. But it was yeah. kind of interesting. So it just kind of progressed like that. And then we had uh, one of the guys that was in our town had moved away and to a bigger town, uh, to Kenora. And they had a junior team, which is junior is... You start about 16 and you go to 20. Draft age was 20. So you get to the pros. But so it was a matter of, I was in, I was the big apple in a little orchard in Terrace Bay. Yeah. And he convinced this team to draft me in their, in their junior draft. So I ended up getting drafted to a bigger town. So now I went from a town of 1600 to a town of 12,000. So that's huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now all of a sudden that, that orchard is bigger and there's more big apples in there. So you have to prove yourself every place you go. Of course. Yeah. So I was there a couple of years. And then as far as my development, I was late because then it was 18, 19. I only had one year left of junior. Mm. Usually they draft junior A, which is the top elite group. It's like minor league baseball. You have triple A, double A, Major Junior A is the next step to turning pro. They convinced them to draft me. I can remember Angie Bambaco was a GM, and unfortunately, he just passed away last year. What a great gentleman he was. And so Sault Ste. Marie, which is 120,000 people, and that was in Major Junior. So they're up against the big teams, and that's the one the scouts are always watching for pro. So I got drafted. They drafted me in the junior program, realizing I was only 19 and I'd only had one year of eligibility left. And so it was kind of basically it's a walk on. I mean, I mean, I in my mind I was set. I'm, I'm making the team. Yeah. There's, no, there's no way I'm not going to make the team. But in reality, the chances of me making the team were slim just because of my age and where I hadn't played any major hockey. So I went there and, and I made the team and I did real well. I ended up like eighth in scoring in the whole league. Oh wow! So just for one year. But Andrew Bambaco, we, he always he always kidded me. He says, well, we knew you were going to be good. And I says, yeah, you knew me. You're, so, you're going to be so good that you drafted me in the 29th round. <laughs> yeah. So 29 rounds times 18 teams. You have to mathematically figure that out where I was. I was the last person drafted. So it was like 300 and something ahead of me. Oh, wow. So which is kind of a funny story, which he always, he says, well, we always knew you were going to be good. And nobody drafted that far up north anyways. But it was a fun story. But that was just my first I mean, in, in tier two junior in Kenora, I had a really good second year and that set up for the draft. And I think that's when I kind of was thinking, well, I think I might have a chance, you know, when I, once I made Sault Ste. Marie and then 
once it came turn 20, he just had to wait for the draft to come in the spring to see where he ended up. So then like back then, was it you go to, you know, a big conference center and you wait and then they call your name up like they do or how, what, what does that look like no, back then? It wasn't as big back then. They had a draft. So, and it always coincided with the annual meetings and player association meetings and NHL meetings. And this was in Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And it wasn't as big as fanfare now as it is now where everybody's in the same arena and everybody's waiting and everything. I got a phone call and said, you know, a GM from the Oakland Seals called me and said, congratulations, we drafted you. And Oh, wow. And at the time, were you watching anything or no, on the radio? There was or? nothing. Yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was no coverage. I mean, we're so far north anyways. It was kind of like, well, did you hear anything? I said, no. So you're sitting there waiting by the landline, basically. Yeah, not really sitting there, but yeah, pretty much, yeah. Just there was obviously no computers, no, yeah. and there were no coverage right up there. So I just got a call and I said, hey, congratulations. And then, and then I flew to Montreal and got to meet the management and all that, but it was just very low-key and... I was a third round pick, beginning of the third round. So there were only 16 teams then, I think. In the NHL? So, and that was the first year they had a minor league or underage draft. So anybody 18 can get drafted. Oh, wow. So kind of, I lost a whole round of draft just because of that. Yeah. Huh. Which, I mean, I, I had to probably leave twenty five or $30,000 on the table. I mean, that was... <laughs> That's quite <laughs> I mean, a bit back then, though. It's not the money you're talking about today and <laughs> things like that. So, But it was just the opportunity of getting a chance to play in the NHL. And as we say, today's games and most sports now are businesses, where back then it was still a sport. Interesting. No, and so that... I want to stay on that point, because I think someone like yourself who got to experience that back then and has watched everything evolve to what it is today... Let's talk specifically about hockey. I mean, like you said, back then it was probably more about the game and perhaps, you know, kids growing up didn't think, okay, I want to make the NHL so I can make millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do you think that's sort of tarnished the game or you think it's gotten better? I mean, what's your observations from back then to now and what are some of the things that have gotten better and perhaps maybe that have gotten worse? It's surprising. I mean, obviously... The game is bigger and better now. The technology is better. The equipment's better. The facilities are better. The training's better. And when we had, you got in shape yourself. And most guys came to training camp 25 pounds overweight. Yeah. I mean, the training camp back then was four weeks. And guys would be sitting in their Cadillacs in trash bags, wearing trash bags and turning the heater on just to lose weight. Jeez. I mean, it, it, we're now, the kids are such great athletes. I mean, and not that we weren't athletes. We weren't in shape athletes all the time. Yeah. But a lot of that is, is orchestrated by the amount of money that's in the game now. Yeah. Where I think our uh, top salary might have been 100000 back then. And minimum salary in the NHL is 900000 now. Jeez. So, I mean, if you're playing on the fourth line and pretty regular in the NHL, you probably are making $2 million a year. So, I mean, that's a pretty good business. Yeah. So basically now your body is your business. Mm. So, I mean, if you're a superstar, you're making 10 million. Sure. So, I mean, at that point we're now, so instead of doing a summer job, like we had to do, get a summer job or sit around and drink beer and fish all summer and put on 30 pounds. Yeah. I mean, they'll take a week off or 10 days off and then they're back in the gym right away whether the team supplies the trainer or you you get your own yeah and the idea of that is they're trying to a first of all get to the best athlete they can Mm -hmm. as far as physical athlete and the second thing is teams are trying to eliminate any excuses right there's no excuse to be not successful making 10 million dollars a year yeah no kidding yeah if you're gonna be pulling in that you need to be eat live and breathe and maximizing your potential and it's a responsibility you have a responsibility to your te- your employer which is your team yeah. and your fans and your fan base to do the best you can and and it's a lot easier i think with 10 million a year than it is a hundred thousand yeah. but at the hundred thousand we didn't think about the money right you were thinking okay how, how many can i get next year you know can i do this you know i might get a bonus of twenty five thousand or something if i score so many goals or right? we do so well but it's a matter of, you know, just I want to show up. I'm in the NHL and, and yeah. people are watching me and I want to be the best I can. Of course. I mean, I had one team call me my third year or fourth year and it was the finance and I'm going, oh, you know, I, I must have done something wrong. And they said, can you please cash that check that we gave you? Because 
we have to close our month end out. Yeah. No, I said, it was just sitting right here. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I had enough money to live on and I was playing a sport that I wanted to play. Yeah. And the money, I didn't really think about the money. I mean, check, they paid me, but I didn't cash it. And so I had to go down, make sure the cash is so they can close their books out for that month. No so, kidding. I mean, but that, and it's changed now. And again, it's better in some ways and it's probably not as good in some ways. And that's where you have to think the evolution of any sport, any business, it gets better. But there's still certain traits, I think, from the past that are very important too. Mm. What, what do you think some of the, like, are, is there anything specific that you've seen kind of phase out that you feel kind of lost a bit of the novelty of the game or anything like that? I think the biggest thing I look at is, I mean, the players are bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. The rules changed. I mean, in our in our era, there were just nothing but fights and Donnie. I mean, it, there was yeah. a lot of intimidation. Yeah. I think that has been taken too much out of the game right now. Getting um, too soft. They're trying to make it faster, but by making it faster, so they're better shaped. So they're bigger, they're faster. The equipment now is lighter. And the technology, the equipment is, I mean, you can't get hurt. The way the, the equipment is made now, goalies all the way up, shin pads, shoulder pads, helmets, which are very important parts of the game. You can't get hurt hitting somebody. Mm. But you can hurt somebody really bad hitting somebody. And that and that's the thing is mm. the mutual respect for each other, I think, is gone. I think it's because it's gone so much into a business. Yeah. In my era, we played with a lot. I mean, most of the guys didn't wear helmets at that time. And you don't see as many, I mean, you're not aware as as many concussions as you are in today's game. And yeah. you're not, and there definitely wasn't as many cheap shots back then that are now. Really? Uh, I mean, just because you had a respect for a guy. I mean, you, you wanted to hit hard and, and play hard, but you wanted to make sure that you weren't targeting the head or you weren't hitting from behind. Because if you hit from behind... You knew there were three or four of his teammates coming to beat you up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was part of the game. I mean, you you wanted, I mean, a good open ice hit or a good hit along the boards. Yeah, you, you're upset you got hit. Yeah. And you you feel that, you know, the guy maybe took advantage of, but you knew that was a good hit. You were yeah. you were taught how to hit people and you were taught how to be hit. Yeah. And there's just certain things that in today's game, by them trying to speed it up, it's really... Like, you can't hit from behind anymore. Well, you couldn't hit from behind before either. Mm. But now they made it such a big point that guys along the boards, my father, the first thing, if I got hit from behind, I mean, and I was hadn't, you know, I was going cuckoo or something, he'd say, hey, you deserved it. Yeah. Where now people do it on purpose because it, it's the way the rules are, have been orchestrated where, hey, if I turn around, he's not going to hit me from behind. I got a little bit more time with the puck. I can make a play. Right. But the game is so fast that sometimes you can't stop when your initial your initial hit coming in there. Yeah. And all of a sudden the guy turns around real quick and you can't stop and he's still going to get crushed. So that but the biggest thing was yeah, don't turn your back on the player. Yeah. No, that kind of reminds me too of of in football and then NFL and college and stuff like that. You know, like there's a lot of rules around protecting the head now, but you look at some of the replays where it's you got you get two like mutant athletes that are just like going a hundred miles an hour. And all of a sudden, like you said, someone makes a, a slight move to either to catch a ball or to avoid a hit. But then all of a sudden someone comes from behind, but eh, it's like, they're so fast and so athletic that, yeah, you're still going to have those times where it's perhaps an accident, hopefully no cheap shots, but it's hard to sort of, I guess, define whether or not it was legal or not legal. And, and the, the hitting part is, is tough. And so I'm curious like again in, in the NFL, and I don't follow hockey obviously quite as well, well as yourself, but in football, they've really emphasized like protecting the head and, you know, all the way from, you know, kids now getting into football all the way up to the professional level, like technology helmets, you know, getting penalized, perhaps even suspended if you, if you're aiming for the head is relevant in hockey as well. Like, are, are there a lot of studies and a lot of research going into, okay, like, wow, we really have to work on avoiding that. Or is that not? Cause I mean, I would consider football a collision sport, whereas hockey is a, is a very physical sport, but the point isn't to tackle people and hit people. I mean, it's just part of sort of a byproduct of the game itself. But It's huge right now. It's a big study. Obviously, you touched on a couple of points with the football. The players are bigger. They're faster. The equipment's better. So in the old days, you'd have shoulder pads where if you hit someone too hard, you would hurt yourself. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? And now, like I say, the equipment that these guys are wearing, they're so light, they're carbon, carbon composite. I mean, they, you can't get hurt with these things. So that's, I think, where a lot of the issues come. And of course, the helmets are a lot better. I mean, we used to not wear a helmet. Yeah. Until I lost my first fight big time, I put a helmet on. But uh, <laughs> it's something that the game is so fast. These athletes, they're trained so well. And hockey is a contact sport, but it's even faster because you get a guy probably can skate, not myself, but real good players can skate 25 miles an hour. Wow. So you've got one guy going 25 one way and one guy going 25 the other. That's like being in a car wreck. No kidding, yeah. And and the headshots are the ones that they really are concerned about. But because of the way the game is, now the quicker, faster, you know, changing of the rules, people get hit. And their concussions are a big issue in hockey as well as any sport, any contact sport. Yeah. Hell, and, even soccer, they're talking about concussions. <laughs> it, it, and it's not a and, and a lot of times it's not just a direct hit to the head. I mean, it's whiplash from behind, right. from the side. People are looking at well, it's it's a hit in the head that was cheap. But if you if you get smoked from behind and you whip your head back and forth, I mean, there's concussion there. Your brain mm. is still being rattled around, and maybe not a direct contact to yeah, it. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's a big issue in even recovery of concussions. Everybody thought it was just the head. You have to look at whiplash. You have to look at the side. And I think it's very important in all sports. I mean, that you you really have to somehow get that respect for each other back into the game Mm. and that's where i think you have to turn the business back into a game yeah no that's a really Um, good point but i mean it's not going to happen when you're you're throwing around all this money i mean you definitely want to take care of your own business and you want to improve and get up higher and higher but at some point you still have to put the the game back into the game i think as opposed to Everything now is just derived on the dollar and commercials and stuff. And and that's the way it's always going to be. I'm preaching here and, and hoping things are different. But I mean, even from kids, we'd play hockey in the winter, baseball, golf in the summer, do all kinds. Now, now, if you're in a sport and you or your parents think you're really good, yeah, you're, it's a 12-month gig right there. And, and you've got to take a break away from that. You've got to, yeah. if you're a good hockey player, if you're a good football player, good baseball player you're always going to be good yeah it's not going to hurt these young kids to take three months off and do something else right no that's so and that's something i had robert caskey on a while ago and because he coaches baseball and just a great gentleman in the oil field here and we were talking about you know kids sports and coaching and how he has to be a little bit it's not like coaching back in the old days where you could yell and scream and cuss a kid up and down and and the way you go now it's there's you know there's certain boundaries that everyone has to respect and and those boundaries are dynamic but going back to you know in up in canada we've seen this a lot you know parents would put their kids in hockey and just you know 12 months of the year just pushing and pushing and pushing and down here you know especially here in texas it's you know football baseball basketball and then you see a lot of that but so you would say that it's important for kids to take breaks At, at what point or at what age do you think it's okay to kind of dial yourself into like committing to one sport? Because ultimately, if you're going to compete at a high level, the amount of like extra stuff you can do gets limited because if you want to compete with the next kid, that kid's probably working 12 months out of the year. But do you think there's a good age where you can take that level of intensity and ramp it up to where, okay, here we go. Like, now we got to dial it in. Now it's training every day. Now it's, you know what I mean? Is there sort of a crossover, do you think, at some point for kids? I, I don't know if you can actually put a, an age or a timeline on that. I think a lot of it is is the is the person. Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys mature later. A lot of guys mature earlier. I mean, we had, I remember playing minor hockey at 14, and it was always, you had to have your birth certificate and all that. And you go up against a guy and, and you're going, wait a minute, he drove the bus here. He's not 14. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's got a full beard. You got the, you're like, Come on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then other guys, you know, are late bloomers. I think in my, my career, I was a little bit of a late bloomer just because of lack of concentration. But you look at the greats, you look at, I'm thinking of hockey players, you, yeah, yeah. like Mario Lemieux, Ray Bork. Yeah. You look in baseball, you look at some of the guys that are superstars, Jeter, football, Red Fire, of all these guys, they were ready at 16. Mm. You know what I mean? There's certain guys that are, doesn't matter how old they are, they're ready. Yeah. I mean, like Wayne Gretzky could have played pro at 16. Mm. Mario Lemieux could have played pro at 16. But, you know, he kept them until 18, which again, they're still, they're growing men at that point. Where, and that's a, 
that's a five percenter maybe yeah yeah the other 95 i think it's just individual i mean that's up to good point the players or the parents to figure out but when you're up into the start into the drafted into the major junior or you're you've got a full scholarship ride i mean and that's a big thing with hockey now the american universities are so much equal now to major junior hockey you're getting a lot of college players coming out in the first round best players in north america so, I mean, but they're given a couple extra years grace because they're at school, right? Yeah. So in turn, instead of turning pro at 18, a lot of these kids can't handle going against growing men. They might not develop till 20 or 21, so that's a couple years pro, or but they might not develop at all because they couldn't catch up to that line that everybody was trying to achieve. Where now you see some of these college players, really good college players, you know, they can get drafted at 18 and the pro teams will let them stay in, in school. Mm. And so now you're getting, now you're 18 or 19 and they might, you know, you see some players might jump out in year three or four of university to turn pro, but they've been given that extra couple of years, not only to get bigger mentally, but physically too, because now you're going from a teenager going against grown men that have a family to support. You know, a wife likes to drive really fancy cars, so you got to oh, keep yeah. buying one new every year. So, I mean, there's a lot of responsibility there. Yeah, yeah. And then it's a business, and that's where people are looking at. I mean, and then you're going into a locker room, and you're going to take somebody's best friend's job. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's there's a whole dynamics to joining a team and yeah. being part of a team. You know, first you've got to get accepted. First you've got to prove yourself. I mean, there's a lot of different levels that you have to get to that at that point. But yeah, as far as the players, I think it's all individual. What you know, like when you're in, into that, I'm sorry, regress there a little bit. But when you get to that age of 17, 18, or even 15 now, you really start concentrating more on one sport. But I, I think it's it's very imperative that they go to other things too. You've got yeah. to you've got to get a break because this this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, you go play ball, go go fishing, go play golf, you know, just do other things just to get yourself to come back and refreshed. I mean, yeah, yeah. no, I think that's so important. And I think that translates well into business, especially, you know, being in the oil field is because, you know, a lot of folks, you know, again, you're on the drilling operation side, just like myself, it's 24, seven, 365. And especially now with technology, you can look at reports coming in every day, all day, you know, getting phone calls and you can never disconnect. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of similar to our business. It's like you need to be able to disconnect. You need to be able to recharge and sort of refocus and, and do other things, which is why I love doing podcasting. I mean, I could easily be tied up into drilling operations 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but to be able to get away and chat with folks like yourself and we need that mental break. Right. And I think it's just important for us as it is for kids playing sports or anything that you commit your life to, you need a bit of a break, which is actually sort of, I want to pivot into business and everyone out there. I know this is oil and gas on shore and we've been talking about hockey for the last 45 minutes, but Hey, that's what happens when you get two Canadians on the mic. Hockey's going to get brought up. And especially when you get such a gentleman like Charlie here who played at such a high level, which is fascinating. Cause I always like, it's, it's neat speaking with folks who've, who've played sports at a professional level. It's, I think, you know, I think it's part of every kid's dream at some point to be able to hear stories and perspectives from someone who's done it is amazing. And so to transition into the business side, I'm curious, what did playing hockey at such a high level teach you about life outside of playing hockey? Are there certain elements that you gained or skills or just mindset of playing professional sports to where then it's helped you in life outside of sports? It's been a great comparison. I mean, it's been... I'm not going to say easy because hockey was easy. Okay. I mean, I dec- you know, I dedicated it. Going the rink was easy. Putting a puck in a quarter inch, three quarter inch hole by getting hit from behind on a piece of steel on ice with 20,000 people yelling at you. That's easy. Yeah. Trying to close a deal is, is the hard part, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. But I, I've really seen a lot of similarities. And I, and I have to say... In the oil and gas industry is as close as playing on a sports team in any other business that I've ever been involved with. Okay. As far as the dynamics of the camaraderie, the hard work, the dedication, you know, guys sticking together, guys helping each other out, 
but the demanding part of it. And what I've been able to really capitalize, and it took me a couple of careers after retiring from a couple of careers of hockey to realize how similar business is to sports. Mm. I mean, you look at the best companies, the best oil companies, the best service companies, you know, what are they doing different? than someone else that has the same opportunities, the same assets. Like, why is, again, I'm not going to say, you know, just to pick on New England, why are they so successful every year and Cleveland sucks every year, right? (laughs) Right, They've got the same amount of money. They've got the same quality GM, coaches, and hockey's the same way and business the same way is it's something you have to take a game plan and stay with it. And I've tried to really analyze myself as a business yeah what what can i do take my talents that i had or i developed in sports or was taught in sports because people before me had to go first Mm -hmm. so i I didn't invent any of these things it was just a matter of sitting back and you know the hard work you're not going to get anything without hard work i mean Mm -hmm. somebody's going to walk in and get a couple quick accounts right away but then when they go away, you know, they don't have that training of, well, how did I get them? You know, mm. Some are just handed to you, luckily, which is good. I mean, now, how do you take advantage of that situation? And I go back to the hard work, you know, which is, you know, for, for sports is, is physical, mental too, because you've got to be prepared. You're doing things on certain nights where you wish you were out with the boys and yeah. doing something else, but you're dedicated to that. And, and the dedication to not only yourself, but your team. Your team is your company. And when you're in business, that's your company. Now, how do yeah. I make my team better by things that I can do? And I think a lot of it is, is respect people that you work with. I mean, everybody's part of your team. In your company, you've got secretaries, you've got people that are doing research. You've got, I mean, everybody's together. I mean, you can't think of yourself aloof above everybody else because everybody else is very important to make a solid team. Like the locker room kit at the Patriots is just as important when Tom Brady, if his drink was not there at the right time, that throws out everything, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where you look at that teamwork and it goes, again, you're, you got your role players are going to supposed to do their job, step up to do it. Everybody relies on everybody else to get it done correctly. Yeah. And I think that's what really makes it very successful. But just taking the traits of having to play pro sports into business, I think it's a, you know, it's an edge, an advantage for me because I'm used to doing it. You know, I want to be a good team player. I want to work hard. I want to score goals. Mm -hmm. I want to be successful. But you're never going to do it on your own. And that's something that I've been able to accept and and utilize in in my work where, uh, you know, we've got our operational people are just as important. I mean, just because I got the order, the operational people have to come in and do their job now. And then, you know, the guys that they hire to come in and you try to treat them like they're just as important as you are when they're running the gear for you because when they're running the gear that's the thing that the only thing that's going to matter to you is yeah if it doesn't work it comes falls right back on you and that's again so if you i try to really involve all our guys that are running the equipment and you know getting the rentals out setting it up doing the repairs just to feel just as important and i think that's that's the key and i think just being able to get out in front of people and you know get get talking show that you you have a passion for your job and then I, I try to put, I'm not very good. I'm probably the worst sales guy in the world because I, I take so long to get to know people. Okay. I do really have a lot of interest in, in people that I talk to. You know, how many kids do you have? You know, you know, what did you do in sport? Is this where you were? And I think it really tells a lot of the person that you're talking to. You know? Yeah. And then if you call, you know, the secretary, what's your name? You know, how you doing? You know, and then when you call, you can say your name or his name or anybody's name. You know, people like to hear their name being said. And if somebody can remember your name in a business transaction and he might, they or she might not have a big part to do with the transaction. That's part of getting results where people remember who you are and you're building a relationship that's going to last forever. I was in previously, I was with a consulting firm. That's why I ended up in Texas. Okay. And we ran consultants for oil and gas came down from Canada and moved to Texas. And of course the downturn or with the COVID and all that got furloughed. And I thought I was retired and got back into it with basically a different product, but it's the same customers. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so I, I mean, I drilling consultants, completion consultants, safety, but I was still talking to the same people who are going to need equipment. And for me to come right back into it after eight months and stay in touch with all these people, even when I wasn't working, 
it, it was such an easy transition for me. I mean, they may not need the equipment, yeah. but you know, they answered your calls and they, they knew who you were and they knew what type of person you were. And, and I knew what type of person they were. And you just resurfaced with a different product. So you use the same skills as I did for sports that I did when I started in real estate and when I started in the oil and gas industry consulting and now with rental equipment. Mm. No, that's fantastic. So how did you actually transition? I think you said you went from hockey to another career, then into oil and gas, but how did you actually ultimately get into oil and gas? By accident? No. <laughs> no, I was up in Calgary. I moved my wife from Arizona to Calgary. Can you imagine that? And my two young kids. And so as she said, we spent 12 winters up there. Yeah. Not years, winters. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's um, so true. But I was up there. We started a small company where we bought and sold distressed companies, fixed them up and, and sold them. Oh, nice. And at that point in my career, I, I was doing radio or TV broadcasting for hockey and with Fox Sports in, in Arizona with the Coyotes. And then so I try to make this as quick as possible. When I went up to Calgary, I kind of got out of, away from hockey. And of course, I played most of my career in California, broadcasting in California, Arizona. So really non-hockey markets. Yeah. Moved to Calgary and I wasn't in hockey. It was yeah. the first time in <laughs> almost 40 some years that I wasn't involved in hockey. Wow. But I, when I was there, we started this company. Sportsnet had uh, doing their games up there and a couple of their broadcasters had some conflicts. So I did one game, two games the one year, just filled in. And they said, well, if next year, can you do a couple more? So I said, yeah, I can do a couple more. Plus, I was still working on this more or less investment company. And so, and in, and in Canada, obviously, name and recognition is very important because it's hockey. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's like having a Dallas Cowboy player working in Dallas. People know. And, and, and again, it opens up a lot of doors and it, it helps you quite a bit. You still have to do the work, but... yeah. So I started doing that and then I ended up doing that. And then the next year, they, I ended up doing 63 games on TV. So I was doing both. Oh, man. And my partner, a couple of years later, started to slow down and was getting out of the business. So I just went around to all the other companies. I was doing the broadcasting, but there's still, there's so much time, idle time. My kids were getting older. So I went around to all the other companies and each company had a NHL re- player being a sales guy yeah <laughs> basically i mean there were so many i mean that was just the hotbed is like having all of houston in about a one mile area of all the oil companies yeah in, in calgary it's a small it's only a million people so i talked to a lot of them and one of the players i talked to dave hunter who was a stanley cup winner with the edmonton oilers three times he was doing consulting he got involved in consulting about 20 years at that point became part owner of deca Mm-hmm. And so we, we had lunch and this and that. And he said, yeah, we're, we, we could use another guy. And, and the next day they called me back in and I was in the oil and gas industry. So no I was kidding. doing the broadcasting and the consulting business same time. And plus I was, so at that point I had an advantage because I'd travel all over US too. So when we, had, we were in Pittsburgh, I'd bring clients out to the game. Yeah. You know, give them an experience in New York or in Dallas, obviously in LA. There's a lot of clients all over the place. So it kind of worked both. That's how I ended up getting started. Of course, then I had to learn the business. Yeah. So which which is, again, part of my training. I just wanted to do that. Went on for years and years. Started coming down to Texas in about 2016, maybe two weeks at a time, every six weeks. And I kept on going back. And we had a lot of people running in North Dakota, Pennsylvania, and a few in Texas. And kept on going, well, what do we need? We got to get a sales guy down there. Yeah. So this went on for about a year. And finally, I think in 2017, I says, well, do you want me to go down there and do it? And it was like, well, do you want to go? I guess I'm going to Texas. So I never thought I'd live in Texas. Yeah. My wife's from California. My family was, was born and raised there. But I said, hey, let's go to Texas and give it a run. And, and here, and now you've been living in Austin now for how long? Uh, since then. Yeah, yeah. So 17. So Okay. Nice. So, you know, obviously going through, I mean, 2016 was tough. We slowly start to crawl out of that mess. And then all of a sudden COVID hits. You've had probably quite an interesting time in sales since 2016 being here in Texas. But what do you see right now as the biggest challenge in sales and business development, you know, in a market that's somewhat warm? I wouldn't call it hot right now, but things are slowly picking up. What are you faced with right now that you're kind of, you know, just trying to overcome or figure out how to innovate to to overcome any challenges? Well, I, I think it's is knowing your product, knowing your customer. And there's a lot of great companies, rental companies out there. There's a lot of great mud companies out there. There's a lot of, I mean, so you, I, I try to stand out a little bit different as far as a, first of all, 
supplying them with quality product. I mean, that's the key. I mean, you, you can be whoever you want. If it doesn't work, they're, they're not going to keep you around for, for very long. Yeah. I mean, they, these guys are such professionals. Like I said, it's so close to a sporting team. You know, they've been all over the world drilling or completions. I mean, yeah. they know their stuff. And so it, it's a matter of, I go in with the honesty and, and I'm I, relatively new in the business, still only you know, technically probably 10 or 11 years. I mean, and in a new industry, I mean, I don't even think that I have touched what these guys know for sure. So, I mean, listening is very important to me and then giving honest answers. And and an honest answer could be, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But I'm going to get back to you. And I think that's that's where I find that my salesmanship is not as good as other people. But again, you build that rapport and you build that trust. They'll say, okay. And then, of course, the key is to get back with them with the right information. Yeah. And I think that's the only way that I try to stay with it and like to try to stay with people for long term. I mean, to jump around and go to different companies or think that it's greener on the other side of the fence. I mean, these guys are true professionals. They're, it's amazing how smart they are and how intelligent they are in their business. Like everybody says, well, you hockey. Well, hockey was natural to me. Right. And for these guys, this is natural for them. So basically, that's what they are. They're the superstars and they're in their world. And, and mm-hmm. that's where you. I kind of have to, I try to respect that. And obviously, I'm not going to pull wool over their eyes because they know everything. So, I mean, just being honest with them and, and in following through, just back to the same principles, dedication, hard work, you know, teamwork. But I find that, you know, I'm not going to do anything different. I'm not going to, you know, outsell somebody on something that I know is not true. Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes me look even worse. Right. I and, see, yeah. But I enjoy it and I'm not going to get all the sales. But if I get some, build a relationship. And, and I think a lot of it is reputation follows that. If you're doing a good job yeah. and it is a small world. The oil and gas is a small world that people talk and they say, well, this guy's doing, their company's doing a great job. You know, people are going, well, I, mine's not really going that well at this time. And time is important mm-hmm. when, it, when things are, when guys are talking about that. So you just kind of stay, stay the course, stay, stay consistent and be patient because yeah. people aren't going to change overnight just because, Hey, you're Charlie Simmer, a hockey player. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the first thing you realize it's, it's their business. They're, they're professionals. They know what they want and what they need. And sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's bad timing. Yeah. And you just stay consistent, stay positive. And, uh, and it's hard to do sometimes because basically we're in a rejection world, right? Yeah, exactly. When I first started this, just a quick story. Yeah. I mean, I called people and they didn't call back and, you know, they, you know, I'm going, yeah, you gotta, I mean, I grew up, you know, you're calling back, you're doing this. I don't want to, I don't want to use you. You know, don't ever call me again. It just doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But it was the frustrating as part until I took a couple of clients. We went to see the Stanley Cup finals in LA and there were a ton of people from Canada down there. Most of them were in industry big shots. And of course, you sat around and had a couple of beers after some times, just introduced each other. And, oh, I know who you were and all that. And the guy says, hey, we're talking about it. And he says, yeah, I, says, I get 450 emails every day and I get back to my desk and I delete them all. Yeah. Going, why'd you do that? I said, well, one of those was mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he kind of looked at me and I said, okay, what is your thinking? I said, well, why do you know people call back right away? And he said, well, he said, okay, here's for example. He says, I've got five wells I'm doing. And so I got five wells. I got, and I was just doing consulting. So how many service companies are on a well? It's a ton. Ten. Yeah. <laughs> so, and out of those, you know, say, 15 service companies yeah. you know, right from the, and he says, out of that service companies, there's probably 10 different companies for that each service company. Right. So now you're talking at, you, you, know, you know, 10 times 15 times five wells. Yeah. He, he says, there's 500 people calling me. Yeah. And when I have a list, I have a priority list. I start here and I work my way down to here. He says, consultants is down here. Yeah. So eventually I would have gotten back to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's where, you, I mean, to yeah. break down the industry like that and it's helped with my sales calls and, and not so I can stay more positive. You know, yeah. when someone doesn't get back to you right away, there's a reason or there's a couple of reasons. A, he doesn't want to talk to you yeah. or B, he, it's, you're not on his radar yet. So, I mean, that, that that's kind of a thing that I've learned. I mean, it took me a while and, and it made my sales calling and my, my approach a lot easier and better as far as my mental attitude or yeah. uh, 
progression, right? I just like, because instead of getting, well, no one's going to ever call me back, you know, and it works its way out. And again, it's timing, it's, it's relationship. And, you know, just because you're the new kid in the block doesn't mean you're going to get a call back right away. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice, especially for young Igor salesmen. It's the sales cycle in, in oil and gas is, could be months, even years. Yeah. And so I think patience is something that, you know, it's understanding how to wait and what you're doing while you're waiting yeah. is important. So before we close out, and I want to respect your time, we're bumped up close to an hour here, but I'll close out on a few questions that are more on the personal level, which I always find fascinating on, on people's answers. But do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success, whether that's morning coffees, every single morning you wake up, have coffee, or maybe evening relaxation time? Or I mean, does any do you do anything every single day that kind of keeps you owned in and focused on the task at hand? Well, again, I go back to sports. It was all routine. I mean, I wake up early, so I, I do most of my best, more constructive stuff in the morning, try to set up appointments, things like that. I mean, I have one cup of coffee a day okay. and I have to have creamer in it. It's like, I, I don't know how these guys, the guys in the rigs are saying, well, I, I drink 18 cups of coffee a day and it's straight black. And, oh. and I'm like, but that's what they, I mean, that's what they're, they're sitting up and they're working. I mean, they're actually doing things, you know, constructive on the rig, but, yeah. and I try to set up a routine every morning, okay, like a week or two weeks, especially in Texas, because we don't have a ton of sales guys here, mostly just myself. So, I mean, when you start planning to go to Midland, you start planning to come to Houston or Dallas, you want to be a, you want to make it very constructive for yourself to get as many appointments as you can. And of course, then you're looking at budgets too. You can't just keep showing up in different places for one day and, and then drive back or uh, yeah. so mornings are, are, are my key uh, most people in my house are sleeping so I've got full control of everything and yeah and and I try to shut it down like obviously you can never shut it down as you said but you know just start getting away mid mid-afternoon later in the afternoon I find that a lot of a lot of industry people are do the same routine they're up at four and they're out of the office by four. So, mm-hmm. so you want to, you want to maximize on your downtime too, so you can refresh. Yeah, no, that's extremely important. And I always like to say, if you win the morning, you win the day. And that's, I'm same thing, morning person, I have a routine in the morning. And if I could accomplish that and, and everything's going, going well up, up until that point, the rest of the day can be a complete disaster. But I know at least that morning, a few hours, I was able to capitalize and, and, and move forward take some things off the list. And I feel like I've got a pretty good day at that point. Last question is what's something about you that not many people know about? I mean, aside from, you know, obviously you played hockey. Is there anything else that you've done or a hobby that you do, or just something that's kind of unique that not many people know about that you'd like to unleash the podcast world? Well, I've been playing golf for about 50 some years and I still suck. So that's, (laughs) that's pretty important. Yeah. As I say, I can hit a puck on ice and, put it in a tiny, tiny hole and I can't hit a stationary golf ball very right. well. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I kind of, I just pretty all around. I, I enjoy, I enjoy life quite a bit. I enjoy trying different things. When's the last time you tried something for the first time? Oh, it was, wasn't very pretty. Last Labor Day. Oh yeah? Yeah. Which and, was like it, it two ended, days ago? No, the, no. The, one? The, the last year. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So the year before. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was, it ruined my hockey career. Oh no. Pickleball. Oh Yeah. Nice. Well, we were at the end of a seven-day winery trip through Santa Rosa, and a friend of mine in California has a winery, so we were at his house and had all the boys were over. And, of course, we, we were about four or five days into this thing. And <laughs> yeah. His tennis court, but he, he'd already started. He already put a pickleball court on it. He painted on it, and all the guys were there. So let's go play pickleball. Drink in a hand, of course. Canadian pickleball, you have to have a drink in your hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't spill, but you have to have a... Right, right, right. And of course, once it's like hockey, it's like anything. Once the puck's dropped, I'm going to go there, have fun, relax, and, you know, just enjoy it. Can't. You just... I'm going to be the best. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go after everything. So first two shots, tore my leg up, didn't stop playing, kept playing. Oh, jeez. And then finally, about 15 minutes, and these guys are, are my age, and they've been very successful businessmen. And they kind of looked, he's a word of advice. They looked at me and he said, he says, you can let one go by. You don't have to get them all. So that was a lesson I learned, that I don't have to be as competitive when I'm supposed to be just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, it's still, it's still injured. And I've, a good friend of mine's daughter is a therapist. And we, we went to the, we were in, in Nashville went to the indie race a couple weeks ago. So she's let me have a look at that knee. He says, yeah, torn MCL. You're, you're good though. 
Oh, wow. But a slight there, but I've had done it a couple of times. But so pickleball, it's the most dangerous sport I've ever played. Yeah, no kidding. All the years of hockey, now you play one game of pickleball and you're done. Jeez, that's a good ruin, lesson. Ruined my hockey career. No kidding. Man. Well, hopefully, you know, at some point you'll be back on the ice getting the old hack and whack game in, which is, you know, for everyone out there, I've mentioned it several times. Every two weeks we do a hockey at Memorial City Mall ice rink, you know, oil field hockey. So just a good time and skate around with folks in the industry and, have a wobbly pop afterwards if you desire. So it's a good time. If you're interested in more, hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And I'd actually like to take a few moments to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one, but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years, so make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGDN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. Awesome. Thank you. Charlie, it's been a pleasure. I feel like we just scratched the surface. There was quite a bit more, but I do want to make a quick mention. So you've, you're now working for Total Oilfield Services. If you would just quickly describe, you know, what, what you guys do, what you offer that way, if anyone's interested in perhaps doing business with you or just wants to reach out to get to know more about the company, then we can go ahead and get that fired up. I say in the past, I was doing consultants running people, and this has been kind of interesting. We're starting to run equipment. So we do rentals for basically a couple things, completion rentals. We have tanks, trucking, we have generators, heaters, not a lot of heaters needed down in Texas, maybe just during snowmageddon last year. But other yeah. than that, we have a, a main shop in Odessa, one in Casper, Wyoming, and, and one in Watford City. We run solids control package for drilling with links, centrifuges, and shakers, and bins, loaders. Okay. And then, as I say, we have our own tr- a couple of trucking companies. And then we go with the tanks, uprights, uh, mixing tanks. So there's pretty much generally anything that we can help on site, both completion and drilling, we're able to get. And it's like anything, if we don't have it, we'll get it for you. Yeah. But it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. We run a lot of top quality equipment, I think, which is which is something that is we take a lot of pride in. And our technicians, are all our technicians that run the equipment are employees of total so Mm. they have skin in the game and they've well trained to run it maintain it and so that that kind of fills right in with that teamwork where the guys are out there working for me for my clients they're part of my team and they they really do good job and yeah they keep that equipment going so i think a lot of our main sale is that we're pretty consistent as far as making everything running and running smoothly and, and a good working relationship with our clients that's something that we really preach to our guys and I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed learning a new business and I've enjoyed learning from a new business from our clients too, which is, it's kind of unique where I can sit in there and ask them some questions. Or what are you thinking when, you know, because obviously I don't know all the answers yet Yeah. and I'm first to say that, but it's always nice to learn from experience when they can show me and tell me what exactly they're doing and how I can help them. Yeah, no, especially working with customers and, and clients that are willing to sort of embrace that partnership attitude and, and help help you because ultimately by helping you it helps them and you know obviously you often hear you know if, if i have to teach you everything then i don't need to hire you why am i paying you if i already know the answer or if you're having to ask me but but i think it's good to to have that feedback from the customer because it helps you plan your business and so yeah it, and i think a lot of customers now value the partnership and working together as a team not so much you know kind of pointing and shooting and you know, I'll call you when I need you or if something's on fire, but until then, just leave me alone. I, I think sort of that's somewhat fallen off from my observations. But anyway, that's great. And I commend you for, you know, taking on that challenge. You're obviously at a point in your career and in life that you probably want to kick back and relax and enjoy the finer things in life, which you obviously do. But continuing to hit the ground and like you said, using the F-150 corporate jet to rip around Texas and sell oil field rentals is highly commendable, man. I applaud you. And certainly I think it's it's something very special that you do and, and the passion that you have for it. I think it's great. Yeah, it's been quite a learning experience. I've worked my whole life and then last year with the pandemic and being thrown off and then eventually not bringing back, it was kind of like, well, I guess I'm done. 
Yeah. I don't think I'm done yet. So, I mean, I I, uh, found out that I was living in a house for the last 26 years with a lady that I'm married to. Yeah. So we kept on running into each other quite a bit. So no, (laughs) I've been very blessed that way as far as family and wife, but I didn't think I was done yet. And I enjoyed the challenge and I, I really appreciated the opportunity. I mean, for someone to call you out of the blue and say, hey, we'd like you to come work with us and help us with the Texas. It's something that's okay. I'm doing something right. And I want to keep doing it for as long as I got long as I can. I mean, get it up and up and running. And then obviously more than willing to pass on to younger people. And that's the evolution of life, evolution of business, you know, get, get in there, do some hard work and teach people the right way to the way I think it's the right way. Yeah. I mean, everybody's going to have their own style or their own way of doing it, but I've enjoyed the way I do it and I enjoy the way you do your business. I mean, it's nice to meet other people and learn from them. Like yeah. I say, when I learned from the company man about, you know, drilling and all that, I mean, and it, it's cool to see it in their eyes that they, they want to talk about it. Yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of people for them take it for granted that everybody knows what, what's going on. Right. But yet they can really pass on knowledge as can sales guys to each other. And like I say, it, it's so tight in this business. It, it's, it's fun to be part of. Yeah, no, that's exactly. So if people want to reach out to you or to get to know more about the company, what's the, and I can put the links in the show notes, but you know, is it LinkedIn or email? Like what's the best uh, way to reach out? Email. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I'll put your email in the show notes and I have that. That way people can scroll and click on it if they want to send you an email. And then on website, they have, we have a full perfect display of both uh, equipment and video okay. in that way. And yeah, you can reach out to any one of us and if we can help you, that'd be great. If not, just to sit back and have a coffee and, yeah. and learn a few other things from each other. That's perfect for me. Hey, there's value in that too. And for all the folks out there, I appreciate all the support. If you could leave a review, it always helps. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.